are entering the Freedom Hut. Seven hours of Democrat insanity on display. They had their town hall on climate change. It was the wackiest thing I've seen in TV in a long time. We'll break down different aspects of it and tell you everything you need to know. Coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. You think I can speak for three hours without a phone call? Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Life on Earth is at risk. Climate change. The single greatest concern for war. We are fighting for the survival of the planet Earth. It is a monumental crisis. It is about an existential threat to who we are as human beings. The UN has told us that we have about 12 years to get this right, or the consequences could be catastrophic. It is the issue, the lens through which we must do everything that we do. It is an everyday mission. We can lead the world on the greatest challenge that we've ever had. I would end all fossil fuel subsidies, and I'm going to take it a step further. I propose a constitutional amendment that makes it the responsibility of the United States government to safeguard and protect our environment for future generations. This is on par with winning World War II, perhaps even more challenging than that. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Wow, folks. Wow. I... I rarely am, I'm a a radio host. Have I ever really had a loss for words? Hopefully not. But does it get any crazier than what those Democrats were saying last night? Can you think of anything that is too extreme or exaggerated for them to say about the threat of climate change? What could be a bigger threat than existential? Meaning the end of existence, the end of humanity, the end perhaps of a habitable planet. This is not an exaggeration. They say this repeatedly, explicitly, and they say it with a certainty that should be terrifying to everybody because who the heck are all these people that think that they understand what the world's going to be like in 50 years? I don't know what the world's going to be like in five years. I was overwhelmed. Now, I did not watch all seven hours. I don't know if any human being in America watched all seven hours. I doubt it. But I did watch as much of it as I could stomach, a lot of the clips of it. And this is where the Democratic Party is right now. This is what they're really all about. This is what they believe. Um, They think that we are in an existential battle for uh, the future of the human race. They don't act like it as individuals, but they want the control as a government body. They want the control from up above to tell us all how to live our lives, what we can do, how the economy should function. This is where the Democratic Party has gone to an extreme that should be worrying to all of us. I mean, I go back and forth. I'm not always sure if we should laugh or cry about this. That this is a position that is supposed to be held by the intelligent, by the well-educated, by the well-meaning. That climate change means we only have 10 years to make massive changes to our lives in this country that would make us much poorer, that would slow all kinds of technological growth and prosperity that have real consequences, good and bad, in people's lives. 
they're willing to do all of this. Here, here's what I'm going to tell you. Uh, this, unfortunately, this hysteria is not really new. It is cyclical. Uh, there was a book that was written back, I think it was in 1968. The Population Bomb by Dr. Paul Ehrlich. I'll just read to you a little bit from the prologue of this. This book sold millions of copies and had a very real impact on the scientific community around the world. Some even say it uh, led to some of the horrific population control policies that many countries around the world implemented. Most well-known is China's one-child policy, but there are other countries, too, with for sterilization. These bad ideas that Democrats are trotting out last night, keep in mind, if they could, they would. They're serious about this stuff. Well, here's what Dr. Hashtag Science Ehrlich was writing back in the 19, late 1960s and then in the 1970s. This became a phenomenon. Quote, the battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s and 1980s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. At this late date, nothing can prevent a substantial increase in the world death rate, although many lives could be saved through dramatic programs to stretch the carrying capacity of the earth by increasing food production and providing for more equitable distribution of whatever food is available. But these programs will only provide a stay of execution unless they are accompanied by determined and successful efforts at population control. Population control is the conscious regulation of the numbers of human beings to meet the needs, not just of individual families, but of society as a whole. End quote. Now, I don't have to tell you, this guy wasn't a little bit wrong. He was totally wrong. As wrong as wrong gets. Not only did we not have mass die-off of hundreds of millions of people, population growth has exploded globally. And our biggest health crisis in the developed world in particular is overeating, is too many calories. We have more people than ever before. We have more food than ever before. So he couldn't have been more wrong. He was wrong in a way that would be hard to replicate. And you may be saying, well, Buck, but that's population control. How does that? T-? Well, of course, there's the, sci- the scientific movement here. Sierra Club uh, in- involved in the publication of this. A lot of scientists saying, you know, we're afraid. And, oh, some of you are probably saying, wait, Buck, what about, what about uh, uh, Malthus back in the 19th century? Didn't Malthus have a similar thesis, the, the Malthusian thesis that we would, population would reach a point where we could not feed it anymore, and then there'd have to be, Massive reduction over time in population because we can't feed all the people. And there might be, if there's famines and things, mass die-off that occurs as well because our food supply will be so precarious and overstretched. Oh, that's right. John Thomas Malthus, he thought that too. He was a really smart guy. Hashtag science. People thought he was right. Yeah. Uh, there, are, there are many, many times more people globally in the world now than, than there were when Malthus was writing that. What does it have to do with population control? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because last night, Bernie Sanders, when he was asked about how we have to fight climate change, explicitly said 
yeah, you know, we should probably have abortions in third world countries so there are less people. This is what he's saying. We should have abortions in third world. You know, we need more population control to help fight with climate, to help fight climate change. So that means America needs to start pushing and funding abortions all over the world. Let's kill more babies to stop climate change. I'm not making this up, folks. This is what he said. Human population growth has more than doubled in the past 50 years. The planet cannot sustain this growth. I realize this is a poisonous topic for politicians, but it's crucial to face. Empowering women and educating everyone on the need to curb population growth seems a reasonable campaign to enact. Would you be courageous enough to discuss this issue and make it a key feature of a plan to address climate catastrophe? Well, Martha, the answer is yes. I think especially in poor countries around the world uh, where women do not necessarily want to have large numbers of babies and where they can have the opportunity through birth control to control the number of kids they have, something I very, very strongly uh, support. Population control, folks. And we went on to get into more specifics uh, about about abortion, Um, but population control. That's what they're advocating. They were advocating population control 50 years ago. Then it was because we were going to run out of food, they said. This is the scientists. We're going to run out of food. Now, and you might say, Buck, that wasn't all scientists. Yeah, but the people that study food and population growth, this became the fad. This became what, if you were in this area, just like with climatologists now, you want to have the loneliest, loneliest professional life in the world? Be a climatologist who says, you know, we really can't predict the future. We don't know. And we shouldn't make we shouldn't take drastic measures that we know will absolutely have a, have a major cost associated with them based on what is at best an educated guess about what the future of climate will be. You want to be that guy? You're going to have no friends, no grant money, probably get death threats. This end of times based on science ideology is not new we've been through this before these people are wrong they're wrong they can't tell what the future of the world will be they can't tell you what science is going to be able to do and yet they want us to make decisions right now that would be horrifically counterproductive and that would have very real cost that uh that fad of population control as necessary to save us from mass starvation in the 70s that led into uh, forced sterilization in India, China's one child policy. Uh, you know, y- you can trace this thinking all the way all the way back to the origins of the eugenics movement. That we have to control the population. Uh, eugenics was coined by Francis Galton back in 1883 with inquiries into human faculty and its development. Galton took the term as deriving from the Greek eugenes, namely good in stock, hereditarily endowed with noble qualities. The original eugenicists were all about population control, and they thought they were doing a good thing. Oh, we're just going to have only the healthiest and the best people. We need to control the undesirables. This led to some of the most twisted and horrific government, government instituted, mind you. Eugenics is not something that people do in their spare time on the weekends. It's governments that do this. Governments that seize control and force sterilization. Governments, by law, including our own folks. But it was for our good, you see. That's what they told us. 
going after people who had uh, mental health issues, who were born with with different uh, disabilities or infirmities. In other parts around the world, it was people who are from the wrong group, whatever that may be, from some outgroup within the society. Yeah, they should be sterilized. Maybe there should be forced abortions, too. Depends on which country we're talking about. If they really believe, if the left really believes what they are telling us and what they are selling us right now, and that is that we face an existential crisis, we must turn around the CO2 curve or else we're all going to die. Why would we think that it's too much for them to advocate for population control? Why would we think that it's uh, in any way uh, a surprise that they would want to get rid of the Mexico City policy that says that we can't support use taxpayer dollars to support abortions abroad. Of course, they're going to want to get rid of all of that. If they really believe what they're saying. This was lunacy on display last night. And it's something that we all should remember as we think about who we really want in charge in this country. President Trump is not perfect. I've never said he is. You know, he's not. And. We have to do our part as supporters of the president, those of you who are listening who are, and I know not all of you are, but as supporters to guide him toward the best policy decisions possible to govern as well as he can while protecting fundamental individual freedoms and constitutional rights. The other side, forget about not being perfect, the other side are a bunch of statist, petty totalitarians. And there's nothing that they think is outside the bounds of what they're allowed to do. If only they come up with a creative narrative to justify it. You do not want those people in charge. Just look at the history of what happens when they acquire that much power in any country, anywhere in the world. We'll be right back. What you described is the most existential threat to our country's future. And uh, the U.N. has told us that we have about 12 years to get this right, or the consequences could be catastrophic. The most existential threat this country faces. I can tell you, you know what is an existential threat to this country? Um, Open borders. Oh, yeah. The dissolution of the polity, the sense that this is no longer a community of of citizens and, and Americans, that this is just a place where anyone can come and go as they please without any loyalty without any respect for sovereignty and the rule of law that this entity has what is americanness if anyone just shows up whenever they want uh, to and leaves whenever they want to that's one another one is the fiat currency we have which as i've told you and i'm somebody who likes history all of the fiat currencies of the past have all gone to zero and we're now at uh, i remember we were not even at 20 trillion dollars in debt and people were very concerned i remember the tea party movement very well it's when i got into media and sure enough now we're what at 23 heading to 24 i think gonna be at 30 before long folks that's that's, this is gonna be a problem Uh, so there are real possible and look i'm i'm an optimist and maybe that's probably it's probably not good for radio i should be here like we're all gonna die and everything is terrible and all you know the commies are gonna like overthrow the government any day now all that kind of stuff. Um, some people do that. I don't like to do that. I, I respect and admire this audience too much to just try to hit hit fear centers in people whenever, oh, look at this. This is so bad. This is so crazy. The Democratic Party, though, has gone socialist, and that is very concerning. That's real. 
It is now a socialist party. Uh, They won't call themselves that because they understand the connotations. And enough people still have some connection to history, some understanding of history, that just to openly say that the Democratic Party is a socialist party is problematic for them. But the mentality that you see of mobilizing us behind this climate change idea, there's a reason that they use martial rhetoric. There's a reason that this is being set up as the uh, the moral and political equivalent of war. And that is because Democrats stretching back to clearly Woodrow Wilson and FDR think that that's the best way, the best way to be able to control people and get them to do what you want and mobilize the collective. In fact, you could even look back at the French Revolution. That was the idea, the mobilization of the people, an army of the people. This is this is right at the center of Marxist and socialist rhetoric that the, the the collective needs to act as one in the furtherance of the revolution. In this case, the collective will be acting as one against climate change. But because climate change is all encompassing, it means that the will of the people as determined by the Green New Deal cadre, whoever that may be at any given time, uh, will decipher for all of us what needs to be done in every aspect of our lives, because this is a war you can't sit out. The war on climate change, you see, there's no conscientious objectors. There's no one on the sidelines. You're not allowed to opt out. You're not allowed to choose to not participate. You will be made to. This is why they like it. This is why they use the rhetoric they do. um, And people like Beto O'Rourke say things like this. My son, Henry, who's eight years old, when I was talking to him the other night, um, he asked me, Dad, if you win and you become president, we get to live in El Paso, right? And I said, no, if, if we win the way this works, we would live in Washington, D.C. But he knew because I had told him about the warming that we face, that our community will be uninhabitable, will not sustain human life along this current trajectory unless something dramatically and fundamentally changes. And that's like a form of child abuse to lie to your kid that way. But maybe he's just lying about the kid saying that. That's more likely. So what's the most outrageous thing? If we're going to talk about the martial rhetoric of libs when it comes to climate change, what is the thing that they could say that there's got to be a part of this? They're not really going to do that, right? They're not really going to make that comparison, are they? They've already said that it's an existential crisis, that it's the biggest threat we face. You will hear... People who think of themselves as intelligent and well-informed say that uh, it's the biggest national security threat we face. The biggest national security threat we face is climate change. So in that vein, I said before that you like they like the martial rhetoric of, you know, this is a fight we all have to be in and we need to mobilize. And what, what are they going to say it's like? Oh, that's right. They're going to say it's like. Fighting the Nazis in the Second World War. I'm asking Americans to make this our priority. One of the reasons I love the framing of the Green New Deal is it uses some of the language that we might associate with the way that we met the response of Nazi Germany in World War II. All of this country coming together with a singular focus of making sure that we overcome what was at that time an existential threat to this country and to our democracy. Mass mobilization, folks. He's even saying we, we like to use these words. We like to make it sound like that's what's going on here. Mass mobilization. 
interesting, isn't it? Oh, he's not. The, you might say, oh, Beto, he's a clown. Beto's not the only one who brought up the World War II fighting analogy uh, last night at this climate change debacle. We have to actually unify the country around this project. And that means bringing people to the table who haven't felt that they've been part of the process. I mean, this is the hardest thing we will have done, certainly in my lifetime as a country. This is on par with winning World War II, perhaps even more challenging than that. Does anybody really think we're going to meet that goal if between now and 2050 we are still at each other's throats? It's not going to happen. We've got to figure out a way to rally, and that means everybody from cities to farms to the federal government to the international community. Might be harder than World War II. I, I mean, you, you do have to sometimes just say, wow, these, these people really, there's a... Uh, Beto O'Rourke and Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete's, uh, you know, he's a veteran, a Rhodes Scholar. And how, how could someone who is theoretically so well-read and erudite, theoretically at least, Rhodes Scholars are not nearly as impressive as people like to pretend they are, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, how can they say things like this and expect anyone to take them seriously afterwards? 60 million people died in World War II? Climate change is what exactly? There's going to be some melting glaciers that will make the sea levels rise. We'll be okay. It's not even going to happen the way they say it's going to happen. And who knows? Maybe in 10 years, there'll be some way that we can just clean all the CO2 out of the atmosphere. They don't know. By the way, that wouldn't be a good thing because then all the plants would die, right? But you know what I'm saying. Maybe there's something that is going to happen that we don't even know about. They don't know. But this is the... The central fallacy of the central planner. They don't know what they don't know. And they refuse to accept that there are things that they can't know. And yet they want to take dramatic. They want to force us. It's, they're not asking. This is why they're using the, the rhetoric about immobilization and war. They want to force us to listen to them, to bend the knee, to do what they tell us to do. It'll make us poorer and there's no upside here you know at least the upside of socializing health care is theoretically some people will get health care although eventually it'll just collapse and then nobody's getting the health care they should but theoretically some people will get health care that wouldn't so so it's a bad idea but there's some offset of good that will come from the bad idea at least with climate change this is the worst of ideas in many ways because it's only downside because the upside that they think exists does not exist there is nothing about reduction of co2 via government fiat i keep saying this is already happening as a natural technological process we are decarbonizing it's easy to figure out it's anyone knows this that spends two seconds thinking about it but for the government to do this great leap forward into a carbon-free future is utterly insane. But they don't they refuse to accept that they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. And here we are. The central planners telling us how we should live our lives and it's not even like there's something that we get from it that would make that that would be worth anything. This is utter worthlessness. Massive destruction of wealth and freedom 
and technological advancement and so much that has made human beings healthier and wealthier and better off. They want to push against all of that. Just like, you know, Malthus didn't like that people were having so many kids and all of a sudden these industrialized societies could support much larger populations in cities and, oh, can't have that. Paul Ehrlich, you know, oh, we can't have all these people. And he, by the way, was very down on all the people. Ehrlich was down on all the people in the third world specifically. They're having too many kids, but scientists try to sweep some of that under the rug now. We'll be right back. Do you ban plastic straws? I think we should. Yes. So would you ban offshore drilling? Yes. We have to take the take combustion engine vehicles off the road as rapidly as we can. Let's talk about offshore drilling for oil. Would you ban it? Yes. Would you ban offshore drilling? Absolutely yes. We will transition off of fossil fuels, natural gas, coal, oil. What about the export of fossil fuels from the United States? Would you ban that? Absolutely, we must get to that point. There's no question I'm in favor of banning fracking. I'm in favor of a carbon-free America. In my administration, we're not going to build any new nuclear power plants. We, 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 we set out the rules for what kind of plant, you know, coal-burning plants. No one's going to build another coal-burning. We've got to shut the ones down we have. We're going to end factory farming because that is not only, that is a danger to the environment. And to climate change, you know, there will be a transition. There will be a transition and, and, and there will be some pain there. Yeah, but not as much pain. Have you ever seen all those chickens? One chicken after another, they're all on top of each other. It's all crowded. You know, the little chickens, they're going cluck, cluck. And it's like, who's taking care of those chickens? They're all in there. Are they getting enough exercise? Is anyone taking them out for a little walk? Do they have little leashes for the chickens? I don't think so. Bernie raises some very interesting points. I'll tell you this. Uh, there was a common theme <laughs> in this seven-hour-long climate change lunatic asylum uh, that CNN did uh, last night. I should say really last after, late afternoon slash into the night. And the theme is they just want to ban things. They want to stop things. They want to tell you what to do. I mean, control is a major component of the leftist mindset, but banning, you can't have this, ban this, not allowed to do this. This is where we see there is, there is a real debate, a real argument going on in this country about freedom. This is about personal, individual, corporate, business, commercial freedom. That's what's at stake here, because if they can get this stuff through, they'll tell you that there's no end to what they think they're allowed to uh, to dictate for you, um, they they want to ban. I I just can't even think of anything right now. I mean, any consumer product, they'll be able to put their foot on uh, put their foot on the pedal and tell you yes or no. Uh, anytime. Oh, and also they find a way to tie climate change into things that just no reasonable person thinks have anything to do with climate change. Okay, this is just nuts. Beto, for example, still, I'm at like 0% in the polls, but like, I'm going to drop another F-bomb on TV and then everybody will want to watch me. Uh, Beto says, for example, that the not only is, is climate change causing the refugee crisis, but because we are the prime driver of climate change. This is the this is how the logic goes. We are responsible 
for creating the conditions that forced the refugees to come to this country, ergo, we have an obligation to take anybody who shows up. We have an obligation to uh, bring them into this country and, and pay for their stuff. And you know, it doesn't matter what the American people want. We owe it to people in countries that are going through droughts, for example. This is our opportunity. That is the threat that we face. And so we must be an international leader on these issues. In Brazil, in Guatemala, where we've helped to precipitate a drought that they have never seen before, which has forced families to travel 2,000 miles to come to this country seeking asylum and refuge and salvation, only to have their children placed in kids and their parents deported back. We have to understand that we are all connected on this planet. We all have a responsibility, and the United States especially, the indispensable country has the opportunity to lead. Beto doesn't know anything about history. I really start to think he doesn't know anything about anything. I don't know what this guy's wheelhouse is other than just sanctimonious crap, just saying things that he thinks sound good to people who also don't know anything. The history of humanity is just a series of movements and migrations over time. Drought, famine. I mean, has this guy ever read the Bible? Has he read a history book? People move around all the time, often because they're looking for something better, because where they are is having problems. This is, this is not new, folks, at all. What is new is this pseudoscience of, well, they're moving because it's our fault. By the way, why isn't, it, why isn't it China's fault? Why shouldn't China take in all the Guatemalan and Brazilian refugees, as he's referencing here? Why, why shouldn't India take them in? Because we're wealthier? They're, those countries are belching out all kinds of CO2 and, and real pollutants, by the way, in the air all the time. But, you know, there's, there's just no shortage of ways that Democrats will tie climate change into any issue they want. Here's Joe Biden, for example. Look what happened in Darfur. What's Darfur all about? Darfur is all about the fact that the sub-Saharan desert, because of the change in climate, no longer had enough arable land. Look what's happening in Indonesia. They're talking about moving their capital because it's going to sink. What happens if you get 10, 12, 13, 15, 100 million people on the move? That causes wars. And so it's well beyond whether or not it affects me personally, which it does, and it did my family and still does, just like your families. This is personal. This person, every one of you probably have a story that can talk about what's happened to something you care greatly about, whether it's a species or it's your son or daughter coming down with cancer Mm. because of it. I'm sorry. So the the genocide in Darfur and cancer are now tied to climate change. What, What isn't tied to climate change? That's a better question, I think. What is not something you can blame uh, you can blame climate change for. I, I'm I'm wondering. I, I think it's an I think it's a fair and an open question. This is just this is l- lunatic blather. This is Joe Biden. He might as well be walking around saying, "Well, the world's going to end tomorrow." And blah, 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 you know, look what's happened in the Midwest. We have a number of significant bases that relate uh, military bases that relate to our national security that in fact were rendered almost useless including i i can't go into the great detail to, to say it but my, my 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 point is 
it, it significantly reduced our national security. I'd say, what is he talking about? But I can tell you, Joe Biden doesn't know what he's talking about. So how could we decipher it? You know, there is no Rosetta Stone here for for Bidenisms because it's just what the heck is he talking about? Well, you understand this is what it was. This was playing to a this is the religion of the left. And this was all meant for the base. And this was all meant for people to reinforce this belief system that that people should. I mean, if you really believe in climate change catastrophe, you should be embarrassed. It's, it should be an embarrassing thing for people. If you really think the world's going to end in 10 years because a bunch of talking heads and pseudoscientists who, if it wasn't for climate change, would have no grant money and nothing to do with themselves. You know, by the way, no, no great scientist is like, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be one of those guys that's, you know, working with the climate change panels or whatever. No, uh, people that really have scientific uh, skills and are gifted are going to want to try to, you know, do real things like cure cancer, real stuff that helps real people. Uh, speaking of uh, of different topics, look, I mean, you know, LGBT issues are important and that's a totally, totally fine uh, ground for uh, another town hall. I mean, they announced last night at CNN they're going to do an LGBT town hall. Listen to this. CNN is partnering with the Human Rights Campaign Foundation for our next series of, of presidential town halls on issues that are important to the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community. So make sure you tune into that. That's going to be next month. It'll be in Los Angeles. Uh, the, the real, real issues, fine. You know that, but I, I think it's noteworthy. What is CNN? What does CNN? What do these networks, MSNBC, choose to hold these town halls on? What issues get over that threshold? And one issue that has not gotten over that threshold yet, and this came up today because I, I tweeted this out at some people. Uh, on the left, uh, why isn't there an opioid town hall? And I would offer to you that the fact that there has been before, uh, or rather the fact that there hasn't been an opioid town hall before the climate change town hall just goes to show you that there are, there are real problems with this fixation on a fake fight. This takes resources away. This takes attention away. Opioids are killing 60 to 70,000 Americans a year in this country. It's a public health crisis, yes, but it's also a crisis within our culture. It's a crisis of meaning. It's a, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. And people are dying. Our fellow Americans are dying by the thousands. And it's, we're just counting the, 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 uh, the dead in, in that number. Think of all the families that need support, all the people who are trying to get treatment. What are ways, what are new ways scientifically, psychologically, emotionally, religiously, what are the ways that we could we could tackle that crisis and really save lives? Libs think that this climate change fantasy, they just they they do ask them. They think it's more important than the opioid crisis. And that's where I have a problem. That's where things just start to turn into this is not just nonsense, but it's now immoral. The diversion of time, the diversion of resources away from much more important stuff, that really matters. The opioid epidemic in this country is real, and we should address that. And the fact that these Democrat primaries spend so little time on that and so much more telling us that they're going to ban straws and tell us that we can't eat hamburgers tells you a lot about the Democratic Party. What's saved is not, uh, is not worth it. For the little they save uh, and what people were going through, it is not worth it. And price was another thing. Light bulbs. 
Different light bulbs now. You should think, is this really, how big a deal is this? Should we really care all that much about the president of the United States? I mean, why are people uh, all so upset? Well, they're upset about Trump doing absolutely anything. Um, But let's just dig into this light bulb rule for a second, because there's a bigger takeaway from these very small things. Here you go. The Department of Energy, this is on the Hill. Hey, I used to work at the Hill. Department of Energy finalized a controversial rule this week that would erase Obama-era efficiency standards for light bulbs. The regulation eliminates efficiency standards for about half the bulbs in the market. It leaves in place rules for standard pear-shaped bulbs while removing such requirements for recessed lighting chandeliers and other shapes of bulbs. When first proposed, the rule was supported by light bulb manufacturers, but consumer groups estimate continuing to use less efficient bulbs will cost the average household more than $100 a year and create more pollution as utilities produce more energy that would otherwise not uh, would not be needed. Produce energy, rather, that would otherwise not be needed. The Energy Department flat out got it wrong today. Blah, blah. People are freaking out about this. Uh, the rule will increase U.S. electricity use by 80 billion kilowatt hours over the course of a year, roughly the amount of electricity needed to power all the households in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, according to analysis by the Appliance Standards Awareness Project. That's a sexy outfit if I've ever heard one. You want to get invited, producer Mark, you want to get invited to the Appliance Standards Awareness Project Christmas party? It's wild. Sounds like a great time. Yeah, they give away, I'm sure they give away a washer dryer to somebody in the raffle. I mean, is that really a bad thing? Energy efficient, bam, you know it. I don't have a washer dryer. Do you really? I have a, I have a, I'm going to tell you, I've got a little closet and I have very little closet space, but I got a washer dryer in my closet. I feel like, you know, I feel like something of a baller, a very clean and downy fresh baller. I just bring it to the laundromat. The nice lady does it for me. Well, there you go. So why am I telling you about light bulbs? You might be asking that question. There's a very good reason for it. This is the evidence or part of a of much larger evidentiary finding of all the little things that libs want to dictate in your life i do think this is very important there is no area of your life if you adopt the left-wing positions of the democrat primary candidates there is no area of your life that is outside their purview there is no area of your life that they can't insert themselves into what you eat, what you buy, what you can wear, how you know how you use your energy, what you do in your own home, what you do your business. Nothing, nothing is outside of their of their ability to inflict themselves on you in some way. I mean, nothing of any consequence. So you know, we we had this light bulb rule. It's a little bit of a, of a who cares situation. And how about this? We need to produce you know produce a little more energy. Who cares? This shouldn't be that hard. Everything that we have seen, forget about the signs, as I keep saying. It's about the history. Look at what has happened. Look at where we are going. The amount of additional electricity and bandwidth and food and prosperity and all this stuff, you know, all of it. That is orders of magnitude, orders of magnitude more than, uh, you know, what we would have expected 
50 years ago. I mean, I, I can't imagine. How, imagine sitting down with your, for any of you listening, you know, two generations back. So your great, your, your grandparents rather. And saying, you know, I'm going to be able to walk around with this little thing that I can hold in my hand that I can, I have access to, to billions and billions of websites, data points, social media accounts. I can talk to anyone anywhere in the world. I can order I, you know, I, I could pretty much order a jumbo jet delivered to my home if I got the cash for it. I mean, you can do all this crazy stuff, all these different apps and connects you and this amazing technological march forward that we've had. And it's it's getting it only has gone in one direction in the post World War Two period. You could argue only in one direction since industrialization in the 1850s or, you know, 1870s, really. But in that direction has been. More wealth, more prosperity, better stuff, more stuff. And what do they keep doing? Oh, no, we're going we're gonna to take a, a chart and we're going to tell you what it's going to be like in 50 years. How much energy can, be, can we produce in 50 years? How much CO2 will be there? They have no idea. Whenever, and this is one of my maxims, whenever someone tells you they can predict the future, you know they're wrong. They can't. They don't know. If they could predict the future in any of these things, they could all become billionaires. Because if you can predict the future in 50 years, you should be able to predict the future next year. This is very straightforward. Just apply logic and reason to their arguments. It makes no sense. This light bulb rule is ridiculous. So Trump is rolling it back. Trump is deciding that he's, you know... Not going to go forward with this Obama era regulation was the country in grave jeopardy of, of electricity overuse or something before Obama stepped in with this. Of course not. But nothing is too small for them. Nothing is outside of their purview. That's what you have to remember. That's why I mean, here, here you go. Uh, here's Mayor Pete. We should start calling him smarmy Pete because he's just a smarmy fellow. Talking about how if you eat hamburgers or you eat straws, I mean, this is the Democratic Party as the environmental school marm of the world. If you eat uh, hamburger, eat straws and and uh, snort hamburgers or not, I, mean, I can't snort them. What do you what do you do with a straw? Anyway, you suck on them. It's a fair point. But if anyway, if you snort hamburgers and eat straws, let's just stay with that. I kind of like that. You are part of the problem. Because, yes, we can all do away with our plastic straws. And I haven't drank out of a straw for the past six months because I'm so worried about what's happening in the ocean. But people feel helpless when it's something that existential. Right. And that's what do you do about that? That's one of the things I think the, the downside to us facing just how colossal of a challenge this is, is it can feel paralyzing. But we can rise to meet this and be proud of it. That's part of what my climate plan is about. It's not only about all of the things we've got to do technologically and with regulation and and so on. It's about summoning the energies of this country to do something unbelievably hard. If you look at the moments when this country rose to a major challenge, overcoming the Great Depression, winning World War II, going to the moon, it required something out of all of us. And I think we could be standing taller. See, right now we're, we're in a mode where we're, uh, I think we're thinking about it mostly through the perspective of, of guilt, uh, you know, from using a straw to eating a burger. Am I part of the problem? In a certain way, yes. But the most exciting thing is that we can all be part of the solution. <laughs> in, in a certain way, yes. That, that's the real payoff there. 
I mean, if I'm eating a burger and, and using a straw, am I part of the problem? Well, yeah, you're, you're, you're part of the problem, all right. But, but you can be part of the solution. Oh, you mean, you mean I can be cleansed of my environmental sins, Pope Pete? You, you can wave your hand above, above me and tell me that it'll all be okay as long as I do everything that you say? I eat what you tell me to eat. I use the light bulbs you tell me I can put in my home. I drive the car you tell me is fuel efficient enough using the fuel that you dictate for me. It's just wild, isn't it? I mean, the stuff that they have convinced themselves of, of I, I feel badly. I feel badly for all of these libs who get up every day and are so lacking in purpose in their lives that they have to conjure up this, this fake battle against something that will never be overcome and doesn't need to be overcome. It's, it's, an, it's an illusion. The whole thing is an illusion. I would say they're tilting at windmills, but at least that looks cool. They're not, e- they're not even, uh, you know, Don Quixote. There, there's something else here. They've gone off the deep end. Little things that they should have no interest or business in, they will tell you, yes. Oh, uh, Kamala Harris. I see her often referred to as Kamala the cop. Because she liked to put people away in prison when she was a prosecutor. She had a very rough record for that. Uh, she also wants to tell you no more straws. To lead and plastic straws adapt. are a big thing right now. Yeah. Do you ban plastic straws? I think we should. Yes. I mean, look, I'm going to be honest. It's really difficult to drink out of a paper straw when you had if you're just like if you don't gulp it down immediately, it starts to bend. And and then, you know, the little thing catches it. And then, you know, so we got to kind of perfect that one a little bit more. So you ban it, but rely on innovation. I mean, we got we got it. Yeah. Innovation is, is a process, right? You don't just do it. It's not really funny, though. It's annoying, actually. You know, this is, yeah, you know, she's laughing about it, but, you know, it's not funny. It's an irritation. And libs like to do this stuff. You know, paper straws suck. Uh, well, I guess that makes sense. Paper straws are bad quality. <laughs> They're not good. I've had, I had to use them in my favorite little coffee shop in D.C. And it's true. You, you got to, you got to down that whole mocha soy latte right away or else, man, you are out of luck. Nothing is too petty for them. Nothing is too small. And it is because this is part of a narrative, not just of being better than the other, but also of creating purpose for people who lack it. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm at the pulpit and I'm going to preach about maybe these people need, maybe they need Jesus. Maybe they need God of some kind. Uh, But they need more than their warriors in an imaginary war. Which is what they and it's a war, by the way, that even though the enemy is imaginary, as I've been describing to you, the casualties for fighting this war are very real. Bad things happen to people because of stupid decisions with climate change. People don't just get poor. People are uh, people are sick. People lose their lives because of changes from these policies. And one of the great examples of this is and I know some of you know what I'm going to say is DDT. DDT was vilified, vilified by the same 1970s environmentalist movement that was all about the population bomb and the Sierra Club and all this stuff. You know how many people have died of malaria directly because of the uh, unwillingness, the, the bans on DDT? You can't even you can't even count it. 
hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, who knows? Huge numbers of people dead from a very painful disease that we actually could eradicate or could have much more thoroughly eradicated, but the environmentalist wackos didn't want to let us do it. Nothing is too small for them to inflict themselves upon. Nothing. Just remember that. That's one of our biggest takeaways here. Your straws, your hamburger, everything. So you rightly point out about nuclear energy. It's not carbon-based, but the problem is it's got a lot of risks associated with it, particularly the risks associated with the spent fuel rods, that nobody can figure out how we're going to store these things for the next bazillion years. So here's how I see it. In my administration, we're not going to build any new nuclear power plants. And we are going to start weaning ourselves off nuclear energy and replacing it with renewable fuels over. We're going to get it all done by 2035, but I hope we're getting it done faster than that. Completely scientifically illiterate Elizabeth Warren taking this position that is is it's pure environmentalist prejudice here. Against nuclear power, nuclear power is the serious answer to the energy needs of the future for this world. It's just that's just reality. Nuclear power plants should be much more much further along in their evolution than they are because of people like Elizabeth Warren who are scaremongering over it. But if she's not going to talk about nuclear in the future, then then there's just there's no seriousness to getting us off of fossil fuels in the next 50 years. Now, I'm doing the same thing they do, right? 50 years, who knows? Okay, maybe not 50 years. Five to 10 years, yeah, that I can tell you. We're nowhere near the level of uh, uh, the efficiency and the ubiquity of renewable energy sources that would be required. And remember, they, they don't understand that these are all moving targets, that our energy needs today are going to just get larger. There's going to be more need for energy, more need for transportation, refrigeration, climate, uh, climate control, not change, like keeping your house hot or cold, um, building things, mechanization. There's just going to be more, you know, AI and all this machine learning stuff that we're going to be hopefully enjoying in the relatively near future. We're going to need more energy, not less. There's no way around that. That's that's just the truth. And. When you look at our, our renewable uh, renewables right now, uh, producer Mark, just do a quick, I can't because I'm on air. What, what percentage of the U.S. energy grid is renewable? I think it's somewhere in the five to seven range right now. Five to seven percent. I could be, that might just be solar and uh, solar and wind, but I, I think it's five to seven percent. It's It's not a lot. And when you start to tally up all the, emissions and all the technology and all the all the waste and all the the energy that goes into creating those energy sources and this is why electric cars is a fun to me it's like okay now you drive an electric car that's good it doesn't you know doesn't produce the carbon dioxide you know problem in the air fine which i don't think is much of a problem they do but you still need electricity from something and you know the solar panel stuff eh -eh, doesn't work though it doesn't work as well as people want it to there's that funny uh, Goldman Sachs elevator account that I told you about yesterday. I had a joke that solar has been the next big thing for the last 30 years. It's true. You know, solar, oh, solar is going to break out any time now. Well, there's a reason it hasn't broken out because there are some problems like nighttime, like getting this, getting the energy once you have, once you have generated it through a solar panel. Where do you store it? How do you transmit it? 
and how difficult and, and energy intensive are those processes. This is the, these are all things that would have to be worked out. The market is already handling this. This at its core, the whole Green New Deal and the climate change lunacy, it is about control, but it's also about central planning. This is the, the fundamental fight of our era right now in politics is really about those who want to let human beings make their own choices to the greatest degree possible. It doesn't mean you can do everything, right? There's a oh, buck. Can you have a nuclear weapon in your living room? No, just wherever possible, you know, the 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 greatest amount of individual freedom should be afforded people in this country versus those who really think and they're called Democrats and they really should be called socialists that every aspect of your life should be planned out for you. You don't get a say. They know better than you. The elites have already worked this all out for you. They save you from having to worry your little heads about these problems. See, but they have a problem too. We are now more aware than ever because of the technologies that we have, because of the free flow of information uh, that the elites are not nearly as clever and not nearly as wise as they think they are. And that their desire for increased control is at odds with their record of continuous and often abject failure to centrally plan well. I mean, just like, you know, you, you can sit here and think of things. Just think about like Solyndra. Remember that huge solar solar energy scandal in the Obama administration that the mainstream press didn't want to touch? Yeah, they they were taxpayer backed. And they were just selling solar panels at a loss. But they figured if they did it enough, they'd make it up on volume. It was crazy. Oh, real quick, team. Uh, producer Mark just told me 11% renewable. I said 5 to 7. A little bit off, but 11% in total. We'll be right back. The NRA has done more to perpetuate and create the sick gun violence epidemic terrorizing our country. They buy off politicians, prevent common sense gun violence legislation, prevent gun violence research. It is time to rid this country of the NRA and call them out for who they really are. They are a domestic terrorist organization. That is a San Francisco Board of Supervisors member named Catherine Stefani, who is calling the NRA a domestic terrorist organization. Uh, it is not possible to think of a more baseless unfair uh just crazy I, I i run out of the words folks crazy insane lunacy this is what we are dealing with now with this democrat party they're just not they're not all there it's it's worrisome it really is i i've become concerned now i i like to you know joke around about it sometimes here on the show but but these people that are the really committed leftists, people like this miss stefani from the san francisco board of supervisors uh, what are they capable of, really? You know, what, what are they willing to do because they they think they know things that ain't so? A domestic terrorist organization based on what? The NRA is is a it's got millions of Americans. Remember, I, I I'm, I'm not gonna I never fib. My NRA membership has lapsed lapsed just because. Um, I forgot to send in the check, but I, I have been in the past. I have my card. I've been an NRA member. Now I'm now I'm reminding myself that I need to get my membership up and running again. I'm 
Uh, gosh, next thing you know, I'm tell you I got to register to vote or something. What's wrong with you, Buck? But no, I've, I've been, I was an NRA member for years and and would like to be uh, like to be back in the fold. I just I'm reminding myself now. It's, I've been very busy with the move. But to call the NRA a terrorist organization is to say that the people that are NRA members are supporting a terrorist organization. So so therefore, this person in San Francisco, remember, this was a city council uh, designation or something. They've decided that, you know, the NRA is a domestic terrorist organization. And this means then, I suppose, they view the National Rifle Association as in some way morally on the same plane as or similar to, you know, Hamas or, uh, you know, Al Qaeda or these organizations that are devoted to killing people. I mean, that's when you're talking about a terrorist organization. Let's be very clear. Terrorist organization is a group that uses violence to achieve a political goal. That's the most baseline. You can add some nuances to it and some some greater specificity. But that is the most clear. uh, That is the most clear or, or I should say the most basic and perhaps the most clear definition that we have for it. So in what way is in what way has the NRA ever advocated violence for a political end? Has anyone who supports or or, you know, I shouldn't say supports because those are millions of people. Has any NRA platform or NRA official ever ever advocated for violence? Uh, is, is it now the same? Are we to conflate the moral stance of you can defend yourself with the immorality of you can harm people or or going out and harming people for no reason. Because if that is the position that leftists are going to take now, we might as well be explicit about that. We should know that. If there's no difference between saying you should be able to defend yourself and, oh, someone's going to be a mass shooter. Then we're living in a world where there is no there is no morality. There is no up and down. It's just whatever the left says it is. And, and I do not accept that that's going to be the future for this country, uh, that they can declare people to be terrorists on the basis of nothing, nothing. I mean, the things that are said to my old colleague and friend Dana Lash that I, I see because she'll retweet it on Twitter. And, you know, I've, I know her husband. I've, I've spoken to him before about this stuff. I mean, the. The things that are said because of her associations with the NRA, and there are other people too, but friends of mine who are supportive of the Second Amendment, you will have people without a trace of irony, without any sense of self-awareness, you will have libs say things like, you know, you support violence against kids, like, you know, you should go shoot yourself or something. They'll say horrible things. They'll say horrible things to you, violent things, because they oppose violence so much. You know, we, we have now a... We have a different media environment, and I don't mean that just in in terms of, you know, that platforms are changing and the social media giants and all that. It is now possible, if you want, to be immersing yourself in very powerful political ideologies of different kinds, really 24-7 if you want. You have an endless stream of this stuff. You can live in this virtual world where you're the good guy and anyone who doesn't agree with you is the bad guy and if you embrace that because of the feeling of, I don't know, commie solidarity you have with your fellow leftists, because it's nice to feel like you're just morally superior to other to other people. If you really believe in that and you stop seeing the decency that is so apparent to anybody being honest in the other side. I mean, so many of the nicest, best people I know. I mean, let me let me just let me just say it. Most of the nice and, and best people that I, the nicest and best people I know are gun owners. 
Most of them. I'm not saying there aren't some wonderful libs out there, but most of the great people I know are gun owners. So when I hear someone say, how could you own a gun? It's so immoral only and really implying that only bad people own guns. It's just it's just ignorance that is tearing at the very basic uh, belief that we should always have in this country in each other's essential goodness, right? Like we're, we're all Americans. We're all, we're all on the same team when push comes to shove. If someone believes that I'm part of a domestic terrorist organization because I support the NRA, and, and if they think that they have a right to send men with guns to my home to take, well, I don't have firearms because I live in New York City, but if I did... And I know I've got to work on that. Actually, I'm going to get and I'll tell you about it on the show. I've been planning to do this for a little while. Um, I'm going to get a premise permit, I think, in New York. And, uh, you know, that will mean that I will be a lawful gun owner here in the city. And it's going to be a hellish process because I know people who have done it. But I'll tell you about what that's really like. By the way, just a, a quick news update on the possible gun Law legislation. This is from Fox Today. The Department of Justice has sent a package of legislative proposals on gun violence to the White House. A person familiar with the matter told Fox News as the debate rages over how lawmakers and the president should respond to a recent spate of deadly mass shootings. The White House has had the proposals for two weeks, according to the source, but has not yet sent anything along to Capitol Hill. It was not immediately clear what proposals are included in the DOJ package. President Trump has signaled a willingness to at least consider new measures while insisting he will also defend Second Amendment rights. You know, I, I think the, uh, I think that the, I mean, the problem, so the, the universal background checks is what they're really going to go for. I don't think they're going to get an assault weapons ban and I don't think they're going to get red flag laws either because of the uh, obvious room for abuse. Uh, by the state and that should make everybody uncomfortable that now the state in a prejudicial or, or in a, a pre-due process i should say a uh, hearing could take away a constitutionally protected right you know what's next prior restraint oh you can't publish that until you go before a judge in a month and then you can decide if it can be published um, but the universal background checks that that's what i think they're going to dig in on and i don't know if this president Look, let's all understand this. President Trump is not a gun guy. He doesn't come from a gun culture. He, he's not somebody who is steeped in the Second Amendment. He's, you know, I, I think he believes in the right to defend oneself. And so he has some, some cultural uh, affinity for firearms owners and, and understands that impulse. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to keep a close eye on this. And we all are. I'm not sure if Trump is really going to hold the line against unnecessary and constitutionally problematic legislation. Uh, the left is really digging in on this. We'll have to see. Yeah, we're, we're compiling the August numbers now. We'll be releasing those early next week. Uh, but we're looking at a reduction of over 50 percent uh, from May uh, to today. Uh, continued partnership with Mexico. And the wall is being built. It's going up rapidly. It's uh, I guess most of you have been able to see it. We're uh, building very large sections of wall. Uh, it's uh, a big factor was we just won the big Supreme Court case, as you know, and we have uh, we're building in different sections. We're building different sections simultaneously. And we think by the end of next year, which will be sometime right after the election, actually. But we think we're going to have close to 500 miles of wall, which will be uh, complete. As I've been saying, a big promise for the president of the United States to keep. 
and you know you had uh, strong jobs numbers the last month. Everything is is very much on track. And as the president continues with his uh, the, the wins that he's racking up here, as he continues to deliver on promises for the American people, you're you're going to see even more shrill and angry uh, stuff from the libs. I, I'm I'm overwhelmed right now by the amount of crazy that we have been subjected to with this climate change debate. And there's going to be more. MSNBC's doing a two a two-day town hall as, as we've been talking about. Um, but I I do think that we are going to see a, a whole new level and I I I worry I worry what it will really do to the country because there's no there are no lessons learned uh, for the left about all the crazy that has happened thus far. There are no lessons learned that really indicate in any way they think that it's time to scale things down a little bit, to, to sort of scale things back. Um, they think that the way that they should actually try to stop Trump is to be even more maniacal. Uh, and, and I, you know, usually the, the progression here, and this is just a little bit of, uh, of, a, of a preview of, I think, what we're going to see. Usually the progression is that they have this far left wing primary, or at least people go to the left during the Democrat primary, and then they try to tack back to the center. Um, and they try to go back to the center uh because they want to get voters from Ohio and and from Florida and et cetera, et cetera. Right? They, they're looking to to do what is necessary to win. And so that's when you get the Democrats that that are um, more reasonable in their positions. You know, this is where that's where the Biden effect is supposed to come in handy. Well, it's tried and true, been around a long time. This guy's not going to upend the world and it'll all be OK. Meanwhile, they've been telling you. What they really think, what they really believe is the stuff that's in the primary. This is what we've learned about the Democratic Party. You know, if they could get their way with all of these things, they would do it. I I do think it's a little bit terrifying when you go to that next level of, okay, assuming that they could get away with these things, assuming that they could do these things, would they? (laughs) Would they actually go forward with the Green New Deal at all? And I, I believe the answer is yes. Uh, there was a time when the Democratic Party used to talk a very big game. Some of them would they'd flirt a little bit with open borders and, and then they would say, oh, no, no, no. We need border security. You're right. We, we can't have a, a welfare state and open borders. You know, they, they would do these things. Um, but now what we see is a Democratic Party that has taken positions that it will be impossible to move away from come the general election it's just not it's not realistic to believe that they're going to pretend that this whole insanity of the green new deal happened and that also means that some of the things that trump is doing well they're going to have to find a way to oppose and the only way so you know the wall obviously they're they're completely against even though and this is what made me made me think of this today you know even though the wall was initially Trump was the crazy one. Trump was the one that had this idea that, you know, no normal sane person could ever think. Turns out that the more time you spend with the professionals of Border Patrol, with the people that work in border security, 
uh, the more clear it is that walls do work, have worked, and would continue to work if there was an expansion on them. Right? All, all of that is true. And yet, none of that will factor into the way Democrats talk about the wall next year. It, it's going to be as though none of the things that have happened in the last three years in terms of the debate and where the country is and what we've learned in this process has happened. They're just going to go back to the same false points about how walls don't work and how, you know, Trump puts kids in cages and he's horrible. And uh, they're not going to be able to pull the moderation game. And I think that that's going to have really interesting implications for uh, for the general election, because then the only way if, if they can't become moderate, the only way that they can defeat Trump really is. A, a base turnout model that is going to be getting even more left wing crazies and, you know, getting enthusiasm up to even greater levels. I don't know if that will work. Um, it depends on the state we're talking about. But it's just we're dealing with a radical Democratic Party that cannot de-radicalize in term in time for the next election. And things like the wall and, and other uh, other things that the president's going to be pushing over the next year. They will act like this is some catastrophe, some calamity, even though, as we know, the president was right all along, has been right all along about the wall. He's been right. This, this debate has been had in public. We, we know that walls work. We know that it helps border security, border patrol across the board will tell you that in sectors where they've had wall, it has been incredibly useful. And. We're just going to they're going to pretend that nothing, none of this ever happened. They're also, I, I think, although I'm not quite sure how they're going to play this one yet. I think you'll see the left return to some of the Russia collusion stuff, even though the Mueller probe didn't find it. You know, we had this whole summer. We went through this cycle of will they or won't they on on impeachment? Will they or won't they? And this was just Democrats playing a political game, trying to figure out whether or not it would be you know, possible for them. Uh, whether or not it would be realistic for them to to impeach the president and have that be a political win for them, right? They, they had to assess that. That's all it was. They pretend to be all about principle, but as soon as the principle gets in the way of their relentless lust for power, then all of a sudden the principle doesn't really matter. So you'll 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 see some of these themes returning. You'll see this coming back. Uh, time and again over the next really the next now 13 months and so we will have to see uh, we'll have to see what is going on there so uh, we have my friend sean parnell who'll be joining us here in studio in just a moment sean is the sean is a great dude he's got a new book out uh we're gonna have a very a very relaxed conversation here just about a whole bunch of things and uh, i think you're gonna want to hear that so stick around team everybody i have a special treat for you today Everyone in Team Buck gets very excited, especially all the Team Buck ladies. We have Sean Parnell here in the flesh, author <laughs> of All Out War. Sean Parnell uh, also wrote Man of War. His books are fantastic. He's a great guy. He's a former Army Ranger, best-selling author, Patriot Man About Town. Mr. Parnell, good to have you here, sir. This is exciting. Anytime I get to be in studio with the great Buck Sexton in the Freedom Hut is an honor and a privilege. Yeah, man, absolutely. So wh- why don't we start if we can just to tell us a little bit about this book and then we're just going to talk about some other random things we're going to keep you here for a while well so 
you know, this book starts six months after um, Man of War, and Eric Steele is wounded pretty seriously in the first book, and he is, he's got to recertify to get back on active status. He recertifies, and the first thing he does is to go have dinner with his mom, and all hell breaks loose. He's attacked at his home, um, assailants destroy his house, burn his house down, critically wound his mother, and knock Steele unconscious, and Eric Steele wakes up thinking to himself, why was I attacked? What did they want? What was their target? Why was my mom implicated in the attack? And he goes off the rails and he goes out for revenge. And as he's hunting these assailants down, um, he realizes that he's been drawn into a much larger conspiracy with global potential global implications to where there are targets on the back of some of the leaders of the greatest Western powers. Very cool, man. So let's just get into some of the, the nuts and bolts of this for a second. How long does it take you to write this? I'm curious. <laughs> so so the first book, a long time. So Outlaw Platoon came out, which is my first book in 2012, but it took six years from 2012 to when Man of War was published to get that story right. I was lucky enough to have an editor sort of take me under his wing and David Highfill at William Morrow. He just said, hey, if you want to write, write fiction, I'll be there for you to help teach, coach, and mentor you. And so- it, so I've read every word of Outlaw Platoon. Yeah. And because I even tell you, like, I love Doc Pantoy. I'm like, I, yeah, I know yeah. the characters of the you, folks. Yeah. You're, dude, and, you're a great, you're a huge supporter of, uh, of that all, book. All true. Story. But I would, the, the transition from writing your story, essentially, to writing fiction, obviously informed by your experience in the military. How'd that go? It's, it's, it's like learning to ride a bicycle without a seat while it's on fire. It's monumentally difficult. And so... Um, this, the, the story of Man of War that's on the shelves right now um, is like the fourth iteration of it. I mean, I had to start over from scratch four times to rewrite the intro just to get just to get the tone right, the economy of words right, the plotting, the pacing, the character development right. There's so much that goes into telling a good fiction story that just takes a heck of a lot of practice do, to do Do you it. get a little nervous about the possibility that you'll make some minor error of oh, fact yeah. when it comes to a caliber yeah. or some gear or something like that because you know some folks might think oh well you'll get the benefit of the doubt from the mill community no. if it, no expectations are higher <laughs> for you like if you <laughs> yeah. if you if you write clip when you mean magazine in this book you're done no it's so t- <laughs> <laughs> well or or if you have if you have eric Steele change out the magazine when he's carrying a revolver you lose your entire military right. well, audience. Well, hopefully you wouldn't, one, do, no, you wouldn't well, do that. <laughs> well, sometimes, you know, sometimes you just make mistakes. You're in the writing process. You're tired. You've been up all night, and you accident. You know, sometimes you just get these phrases in your mind where you know Steele flicks the safety off or he changes the magazine. So just those phrases just sometimes come out. So that's where good proofreading comes in. But yes. If, if you make one mistake like that in this genre of books, you will lose your entire military audience in one fell swoop. That's that's for sure. Do you get people that write in with cool ideas to you now? That you're, an, you're, you're an established author now. But uh, that's all, he comes in here. He's got an entourage of like seven people. It's I, radio, so I can lie about this. He's got seven people in here. The bodyguard with the sunglasses, the whole thing. <laughs> But you know, you know, I'm my own bodyguard. No, you're, you're going, you're going the full MC Hammer. You have a retinue of like 15 people, you know, followed you. I around wish now. that were so. Uh, yeah, me too. Well, that's I'm hanging out until that happens. But then I'm going to be one of them. Actually, I, I wish like, this I is my was... friend Buck. He used to do radio. Now he's part of the Parnell entourage. Hey, listen, when I'm a Hannity <laughs> level baller, where I have my own helicopter and private, you jet... mean you're going to actually run the free world? Because that's a pretty man. High, he, that's a high that level dude baller. rolls around like he's Tony Stark. You yeah, know, that's and that, hey, that's the, that's the goal, right? Yeah. That for us, when that day comes. 
you will be a part of my entourage. I, I appreciate promise. that. And ho- but hopefully, hopefully you reach that level before me, and then I get to be a part of your I, entourage. I, I could do strategic communications, or I could be like Turtle from Entourage, where I just, you know, Just get drunk and hang or do, out. Or do Johnny Drama's job and make eggs. I'm actually yeah. very good at making eggs. But that, so, so I'm intrigued by that. Do, but do people ever give you ideas? What I, the real question I was going to ask, like, does someone ever write in and say, you know, it would be really cool if drawing upon, obviously you have a big military on yeah. their experience, if Eric Steele, like, work this in, or like, I got this crazy story from my platoon, you know, does that stuff ever? No, I haven't, I, ha- I haven't had that yet, but what I, I will say, what I have been getting a lot of with this, with this second book especially, people have been binge reading this book. It's only been out for three days, and people are already writing to me asking, you know, a major subplot of this book is what happens with Steele's father. Steele grows up without a dad. His dad disappears when Steele's nine years old. Steele believes, young Eric Steele believes, his dad just left him and his mom to fend for themselves. But that's not the case. You learn that's not the case in this book. So that subplot about what happens to Eric's father becomes a major uh, a major plot element in this book and especially in Steele 3, which is what I'm working on now. So I guess why I, I say all this to say it is surreal to me that I have fans of this series that are writing me What's happening with Steele's dad? What are you going to do with Steele's dad? You should have him, you know, swing in and save the day on on a repelling seat and save Steele's life. I mean, I get a lot of ideas like that off of already existing subplots that I've created. But man, I'm I'm telling you, I never thought that this, I mean, like being a writer and coming up with my own stories um and subplots and drama and suspense and intrigue, it was never in the cards for me, man. <laughs> like I it was not part of my life's plan. So you know, as an aficionado of books, fiction books, I love fiction books and I, I love television and I love movies. Who do, you, who do you think? I mean, people always ask me for book recs on the show and I keep promising that I'm just going to put my entire Kindle <laughs> library out publicly. And it's not that I don't want to do it. I just get lazy and I have to like sit there and count it all off. You whatever, should but, totally have a Buck Sexton books, book club. I, I, well, obviously, Sean Parnell All Out War would be a top. Offering. I hope so. That's amazing. Uh, I love but, it. But. For you, you know, people ask me, how do you learn? How do you learn radio? Mm-hmm. And with all due respect to the other great hosts, I mean, I I learned from Rush, right? If if, if you're asking me who who taught me how to do radio or who did I try to learn and pattern myself after, for you with fiction writing, are there one or two, maybe maybe even three, if yeah. you want to be diplomatic, who you read and you're like, this changed, uh, this changed the game for me, or this is how I I wanted to be like this one day in terms of yeah, my so, fluency uh, and skill. This is a great question, and so I started reading Lee Child in the mid '90s, and I just was captivated by his stories and and some of the stories that Jack Reacher would get himself into, like the idea that Lee Child's stories are essentially westerns, modern day westerns, where Jack Reacher walks into a town, faces an unanswered question. Answers said unanswered question, gets the girl and walks out of town onto the next adventure. I just loved that format and plot. But I have to say the moment where I decided to like sort of dedicate myself to writing fiction, which has always been a lifelong dream of mine, um, was on combat outpost Marga in Afghanistan. My unit uh, built the very first combat outpost. And as we were building that, I was finishing up a book called Lions of Lucerne by Brad Thor. And... I read that like book. Lucerne, Switzerland, right? Is this Yeah, from like this, this was early the, on. Yeah. I've never, I've actually never, I, li- I like Brad. I yeah. know Brad a little bit. I've never read any of his books. That's not a knock on Brad. I just don't read a lot of fiction. Right. But I know the Lucerne, that's the Swiss Guards, right? Yes. Well, I mean, the, the, the Lions the, the of Pope's, Lucerne. The Pope's Swiss Guards. Well, the Lions of Lucerne are, is a monument. 
in in Switzerland or something. It's like in Switzerland, and it's just this cool little monument statue of lions. And and that's that was early on in Brad Thor's career when a lot of his books were heavily based on the geographic setting of where Scott Harvath would operate. But I'm telling you, man, I read that book. I put it down, and, and I said to myself, I will never forget this. Like, okay, you know, I've been here in this country for over a year. We just got extended. We're going to be here for another four months or until mission complete, right? At that point, I was like, I'm not making it out of here alive. But if I do, I'm going to live a life worthy of the sacrifice of my men around me. Writing fiction was something that I always wanted to do. And I'm going to, every day that I wake up and I draw breath, I'm going to work hard to earn it every single day. And so I just put my nose to the grindstone when I got back. I mean, I mean, initially, you know, I got back from the war in Afghanistan. 85% of my platoon were wounded, some wounded twice, some three times. I came back, and most Americans had no idea that a war was even going on. So my first foray into writing was just attempting to capture and preserve the legacy of my troops to make sure that it could be passed down from generation to generation. And so out, that, that was Outlaw Platoon, right? And so that book came out was an, a New York Times bestseller in its first week. And I think since it's been out, it's been on the Times bestseller list for Look, 30 weeks. Don't get a big head, but it's one of the best military memoirs I've read. Uh, but don't, don't you, get I, all, and you know, we're still just friends, all right? I'm not no, a fan, I, but you know, man, Buck, I it, gotta, is, it is one of the best military memoirs you, I've read. Thank you, I really And I've read a lot of them for whatever that's worth. Yeah, man, you're a voracious nonfiction reader for sure. So like that means a lot coming from you, really it does. Uh, but you know, I nobody was more surprised about the reception that that book received than me. I mean, I was blown away by it, but because of that book's success, I think it gave me a platform to really shoot for the stars and write fiction. And, you know, and the Outlaw Platoon had been out for a week and my editor was like, hey, look, I know, because I've got a great relationship with him. He's like, look, I know you want to write fiction. You've been wanting to do it your whole life. I think that you could do it and I'm willing to help you get there if you're willing to do the work. And so I said, okay, six years later, Man of War, uh, was published in All Out War a year later. So now I'm on a rhythm where I've got to churn out one of these books a year. So All Out War came out a week ago, and I'm I'm in the weeds trying to publish this book the right way and make sure it's launched properly. But I'm 25,000 words into Steel 3 now, so it's a it's sort of a nonstop grind. Sean Parnell, everybody. The book is All Out War. It is out right now. He's a New York Times bestselling author from Outlaw Platoon. This book is... Also a bestseller, All Out War. We're going to come back and talk to Sean about uh, who's going to play him in the movie. He doesn't know that yet, but that's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> we'll be right back. All right, we're here in studio in the Freedom Hut NYC with my friend Sean Parnell, bestselling author. His latest is All Out War. Uh, what's the best? Let me start with this, actually. What's the best war movie or TV show you've seen in the last two years, two or three years, let's say? Anything? Anything good? I feel like they don't. I feel like there hasn't been anything in a little while. There's certainly nothing on the scale of like Saving Private Ryan, Black Hawk no, Down. Yeah. I actually think Master and Commander is one of the true military masterpieces of cinema of all time, which is not as popular a movie as some of those other movies, but yeah. it's incredible for what it is. What do you think? Okay, so I, I would say Jack Ryan is by far the coolest spy. I'm sorry, the preppy analyst who lived in Georgetown, Rose Crew in college, did has you, a swoop has a swoop yes. of hair. And did you see it, though? He's just the, of course I saw it, You dude. didn't like it? It was my life story. Oh, well, of course. I mean, <laughs> CIA analyst, right? Exactly. That, that guy's that's a little, like he's dream. a little too handsome, though. He's a little too handsome. He's jacked. Right. Awesome six-pack. and you know, Yeah, all right, so. all right. I, I'll get to the gym more. Settle down. But the, 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 I thought that as, in terms of a story in a show, that was one of the most brilliant plots and fast-moving 
most technic- technically accurate in terms of combat shows I've seen in a long time on Amazon. And I just saw the preview for the next season of Jack Ryan, and man, it looks great. Focuses on socialist country of Venezuela and the Russians uh, fending us, uh, uh, giving arms to Venezuelans and creating armed insurrections in Central America. It looks hot, man. It looks All right, really but, but good. Now, because you're the author of All Out Wars, you've obviously had to do a lot other than actual war fighting yourself. Uh, study a lot from the genre, seen a yep. lot. I mean, you and I grew up watching action. Actually, let's oh. start with that. You and I grew up watching action movies. We did. For you, what is the gr- action, not not oh, war movie, man, you are the really... greatest action movie of all time is what? The greatest action movie of all action time. Movie, okay, yes. so you are really, really putting me on the spot. Um, but you're, you got to give me an answer. You'll probably you laugh at this. I'm, I'm, I will give you an answer, but I'm afraid to give it to you because I don't want you to make fun of me when I give it to you. But so I will say, one. I think one You can of, give me one or the other. You can give me top two if you want. Okay, okay, so- just classic Predator. I just think that that's is just, one of my answers. So obviously, it's that's just perfect. amazing, right? That's the it's best. just yeah. it's such a great movie with a simple plot. Uh, I love. I just love that movie. Everything about that movie. But uh, I also love the movie True Lies. Wow! I think it's so everybody. Great. He's throwing out a sleeper listen, on this. Listen, one. listen. Tom Arnold today is just. He's clinically insane. He's insane. Like I don't agree with <laughs> can we, anything can we that tweeted he's him together because he'll yeah. freak out at us. On <laughs> he Twitter. totally will. Yeah. But he was so hysterical in True Lies. He was. He was. He is. He to me. He made that movie and his his career. His his dynamic with Arnold Schwarzenegger in that movie as his handler. As you know, Arnold was the singleton operator. He was the clandestine operator, and Tom Arnold was his handler. Hysterical, but. The plot was awesome. They wove Jamie Lee Curtis into the story in a really creative and fun way. So it was I think it was the perfect mix of like levity, fun, but serious, like serious action thriller stuff. So so I, we obviously agree on Predator, which makes me very happy. Because that movie is is absurd but amazing, right? Like like I, the plot is it's like sci-fi, but in the jungles, a, there's kind of a Reagan Contra thing <laughs> going on there. But like all of a sudden there's this weird monster. You know the original monster. Uh, the the suit was too big, and it was going to look much more animate, uh, much more like almost like the Terminator. It was much more metallic, but the suit was too big and heavy in the jungle. So then they had to switch to that like you know lizard looking uh, getup. They I they had to no change. Idea. I've watched the backstory of the. Well, <laughs> it's just such it's a great on movie. YouTube. It's on YouTube. You can watch. And those guys, by the way, uh, J- Jesse Ventura. Forget what he's done since then, yeah, but yeah. like Jesse Ventura at the time. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Carl Weathers. I mean, you just had specimens together yeah. there. I mean, guys who were at the peak of their physical prowess in a way that, you know, you just don't have that in any other movie, really. Yeah, when Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and Carl Weathers meet and they slap arms and CIA got you pushing too many pencils. I mean, it's my and favorite it's like, line in the movie, yeah, obviously. And you just see these big hulking biceps yeah. right there on the screen. That is a, yeah. that right there. That, that was my childhood. But I'll, That's I'll, Americana right I'll, there. I'll tell you, my, my two brothers, absolutely. We, all, we can quote any any line from that movie and immediately jump into the scene like start playing the different characters because we've seen it so many times we owned it on vhs i think we made the tape explode we watched it so many times but uh for me the matrix by the way oh my god Uh, the matrix part one i pretend that the second one didn't really happen the third one definitely didn't. so i'm gonna i'm gonna go i I love that movie i just i guess i didn't really consider it as an action film it certainly is i i sort of these legendary films like the matrix i feel like transcend genre so i love the matrix i i think that it is just an amazing iconic story and i'm gonna go out on a limb and say i actually love matrix reloaded i don't like matrix revolutions i don't i'm not a fan of the third one i don't like how they concluded it but i love the second one well, I those think two that's twins so with like the, the 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 those guys that are like all white head to toe whatever best car chase are, scene ever yeah that, that it is the most amazing car chase scene it's of just any movie of all time but so this was all just a big 
is all just a big preamble to find. I mean, who who's going to play uh, Eric Steele? Well, so I mean, who, I, I'm sorry, because it actually might happen. We don't have to talk about that yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. Who would you want to play Eric Steele? Well, I mean, I wrote Eric Steele's personality to have a very Star Lord esque quality. So, like Chris Pratt and Guardians of the Galaxy, ah. where where he faces very serious situations, almost impossible situations, but he never really loses his sense of humor. At least in these early books, when he's not as jaded as he will be in book three, he goes through some serious stuff in book one, and even worse in book two. Um, so book three, he's going to be a little bit more jaded. But I thought Chris Pratt would be great. Unfortunately, um, I don't think that's going to happen. But I would love to see like a Ryan Reynolds character as Eric Steele. It'd be great, or somebody even lesser known that just like has the work ethic and believes in the story. I mean, who's going to play the sarcastic but very wise CIA <laughs> analyst who's making his coffee and uh, it's going to be, be... Bu- uh, Buck Sexton is my first choice. <laughs> that's going to say he's going to be like watching back from headquarters like yep looks like we just lost another one today sorry well i've got this i've got this character in book three his name is ralphie and i ralphie i told you You think of me as like a ralphie listen to me his name is ralphie i don't think i don't think of you as ralphie his name in the story is ralphie but you said you said you wanted a little intelligence whacker like the guy in the computer yeah of course that's the guy? All That's right. the so, guy. So, so we got some of modeled, that. And you heard it here first on the Buck Sexton Show. Ralphie, modeled after you. Fantastic. Sean Parnell, everybody. All Out War is the book. You should go pick it up now because his books are great. We're going to come back and just chat with Sean about some things going on in the world, and then we're going to let him go on his way to do some other uh, fun media things here in NYC. We'll continue in uh, just a moment. All right, to uh, round things out here in the Freedom Hunt, we've got our friend uh, Sean Parnell, who's joined us. We've been talking about his book, All Out War, which you should all uh, check out. But who who was the the first? I know I was going to talk to you about like current events. We do mm-hmm. that on the, on the show every day. Maybe I'll get to that in a second. We'll talk about some of the gun stuff uh, that's going on right now. Uh, the first author that you read, forget about any specific genre or anything else, that made you like books? Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. First book I ever read was that's The Hobbit, a good, and a I, good call. I read it, and I read it, and well, for, my dad read it to me in, in first grade. You know, um, I read it myself for the first time in third grade, and then every year I read the entire trilogy like four or five times in a row. I was, obs- wow. I just was obsessed. What do you with think those of things. the adaptation that uh, that Peter Jackson did? I mean, it's it is a that was a monumental challenge to do, but I think he he did okay. It was I pretty mean, good. Yeah, I thought he did okay on Lord of the Rings. I'm not as fan. I'm not a, as big a fan of The Hobbit. You know, I think that that movie that was, movie was a disaster. Dude. They that really movie just like went on and on did. and on, and it, it did. was not. Yeah, and didn't, it didn't really. And they made up large swaths of the movie, which again, I understand why sometimes they have to do that for just dramatic license. But there's no need to do it in a story like The Hobbit, where you have smog and the Battle of Five Dragons, and you've got battles with trolls and all this other fun stuff in that yeah, book. Yeah, felt you like know, there was a lot of filler. There was there a lot was a of lot filler. of filler. But I think yeah. he, uh, Peter Jackson did an admirable job uh, on Lord of the Rings. Yeah, for me it would be. Uh, I, I've talked about this before on radio, but it, it's uh, it's really a tie between Tom Clancy and Michael Crichton. Oh, those two. Do, do you those know what, two. Man? I was like in the third, fourth grade, and I started picking oh, up some of their some of their. Crichton uh, was paperbacks. a freaking genius. He was He's incredible. A genius. I, the, his. The premise of all of his books. I love... So Michael Crichton is a case study of why it's important for young authors to start out with a premise. And so Jurassic Park, for example, Michael Crichton's premise and how he came up with that is like, okay, what would it be like if we put human beings in a cage with dinosaurs and made them fight to the death? That was the simple premise that became Jurassic Park. He is the expert at coming up with really interesting premises like that and you know, I have not been able to do it yet, but I love, I love his premises of all of his stories. He's an absolute genius in everything that he does. Well, if you see Westworld, amusement park, 
science goes awry. There's a theme there, right? Yes, in Westworld, exactly. he wrote, when people forget that was a Michael Crichton, yep. uh, Michael Crichton project. He wrote that before he wrote Jurassic Park. So Genius. It's, Westworld is, like, Jurassic Park is Westworld with dinosaurs, which pretty much anytime you're do, in the entertainment business and you can add <laughs> dinosaurs in seamlessly, I totally you're agree. good to go. You're good <laughs> to go. You know? I know. I, I totally agree. Michael Crichton was a genius. And especially, you know, so much of of writing and creativity is collaborative. He 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 never ceased to amaze me with the creative team he was able to assemble. I mean, just around. just imagine Mrs. Doubtfire with Velociraptors. You know what I mean? All those times, <laughs> like, oh no! You know, the, her Velociraptor. running around in the, in the old woman body She's suit, shuffling in the body suit. The yeah. Velociraptors like, Rah! you know, yeah, getting that, her. And, that's intense. See, you'd watch. I'd I watch. would. I it's would. basically the Sharknado formula, but we yeah. we would we would do it better if we worked on these things together. Um, real question for you: You think anything's going to change with guns in this country? Do I think it? No, I better not. I mean, I you know it, what really upsets me is this is whole Beto O'Rourke and oh the government's gonna buy well, well buy back yours. How can you buy back something that you never owned in the first place? And what what sort of mental leaps of logic do you it, like? The real perverse logic of that mentality is is the idea that the Second Amendment was written to protect liberty from tyranny and a gun buyback is precisely the kind of government overreach that the second amendment was written to protect and so i sure as heck better not i i, I will retain my right to protect i, I was gonna ask family. i mean you know if if your state let's say banned assault, nope. uh, assault uh, rifles come and take you're, it you're 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 molan lobby look, on that yeah, yeah look megan mccain was absolutely right when she asserted on the view that there would be violence if government officials came to my if they came to my door and tried to take my stuff like I would say that not only we have a duty and obligation to rise up against that government, uh, that sort of government treachery and tyranny, and that was why the Second Amendment was written. That was precisely why it was written. And you know, if you think that the idea of own like people that go out there and say, "Well, you should not be able to own an AR-15 in these high-capacity magazines," well, let me tell you this: you might find yourself in a situation where you might need one, like. Just recently, what if you live in a city where the Portland mayor throws up his hand and says, oh, you know, please stand on the sidelines and let Antifa run all over your city and throw firebombs everywhere. You might need to protect your family with 30 rounds if you have 50 thugs surrounding your house. Look at what happened to Tucker Carlson. He wasn't even there. His wife and his small children were there when leftist thugs came to his house and banged on his door. I want her to have the ability to own an AR-15 with a 30 capacity, 30 round magazine if she chooses to do so. Yeah, I mean a snub nosed revolver looks cool in old cop movies, but that's really not what you that's not what you want to go go out and uh, defend your home with. And if, it, unless, and if, unless you got nothing else. If you ban, if you ban AR-15s, you you take away. <laughs> It is a it's the most widely owned and most versatile rifle in American history. It's a quintessentially American. You have an AR now? I have several of them, yeah. And so it's a quintessentially American innovation and it's very easy for women to use and operate. And so why would we want to hurt a woman's ability to protect herself by taking away a rifle, by the way, in the mid-90s that had no discernible impact on crime when it was banned in the mid-90s? I mean, it was banned in the mid-90s, had no effect on crime. So why do we continue to ram this political nonsense down our throats in the wake of horrible tragedies like this? It makes me sick to my stomach that people like Beto O'Rourke aren't up in arms about that. I mean, you never hear these guys say, you know what, after this mass shooting, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create a task force and I'm going to go after illegal guns in Chicago. Why? Why? I reject the notion that somehow society is guilty just because some thug, murderous, cowardly thug commits a crime. Why take my rifle as a law abiding citizen just because a criminal commits a crime? What do you say when they when they pull out the uh, weapons of war line? I'm always amazed when they and occasionally they'll they'll have uh, I think uh, 
well, uh, what's his Mayor Pete? He'll use yeah. that. He goes, oh, you know, I served. Uh, I've seen, I've seen uh, Rob uh, Rob O'Neill from yeah. Fox point out that you know, there's like, and I see if you're if you're not from within the community, you're never allowed <laughs> to speak about this. But there there are people that are kicking indoors, and there are people that are in the rear with the gear. He's I was in, in the, the far <laughs> rear with the cappuccino <laughs> machines, but like you know, I, I think that people get a little bit. Uh, Loose with the truth about well, well, these are the weapons I carried in war. Well, no, it's not the weapon you carry. So why are you it's saying not. that? It's not. It's a. And I don't care if you served. If you're going to lie about something, that's well, still I mean, a lie. Th- this is what this is what the left does. They twist language to make it almost impossible for you to understand what position they're coming from. I mean, the whole like again, a perfect example is the government buyback. You know, how can you buy back something that you never owned or the weapons of war? I, I, I you know, I, I've done some deep dive into the Australian buyback program. That's always the model that the that's li- what they that always lives, throw in your face. Let's li- yeah. talk about. So, so the fun fact about that is that the uh, number of guns in private hands in Australia is higher now than it was before the buyback occurred. That's fascinating. You have even more guns in more people's hands. And guess what's happened with violence for the last 15, 20 it's years? skyrocketed. No, down. Wait. Oh, more oh, people oh, no, no, have right. more guns. That's all right. No, I know. No, right. I, this, no, no. I was thinking. Spot. No, no, no. I was thinking about like the. I was thinking c- crime skyrocketed because nobody owned guns. I, I, no, no, no. Yes. I completely jumped over your point. There that are everybody, more yeah. guns in more no. hands, right. And there's less. And I less misunderstood your point. This. Yes, cool. an armed society is a polite society, and I would go one step further to say an armed and trained society. I just had a. I just had a piece come out in American Consequences, right? That that argues a great magazine that everybody should subscribe it to. Is, by the way, it's free. It is that we cannot rely on the NRA. And Republican politicians to protect our Second Amendment rights. The best way to protect Second Amendment rights is being a good ambassador for the Second Amendment, learning how to use your weapon and handle it safely. And not only that, reach out to people that have never fired a rifle before, take them to the range and teach them how to operate efficiently that weapon system. There's never a worse time in this country than after a mass shooting. They're tragic in every way. But those mass shootings are exacerbated only by people's ignorance on Twitter when they start talking about banning things that they don't know anything about. The vast majority of people that are calling for gun bans think a clip in a magazine are the same thing. Well, they think that you were running around with a chainsaw bayonet in Afghanistan. That's exactly which, when you wanted to scare, when you wanted to scare yeah, the Taliban, years of war, you, video game you, stuff. You rev up that chainsaw bayonet, and they're like, "Oh no, there he Man, is!" Man, it's so true. And and so all the people that are calling for gun bans are also synonymous are, are also the people that don't know anything about firearms, and it drives me insane. Yeah, and they always say that doesn't really matter. Your so. stupidity is not a reason to take my freedom away. My hard fought for freedom. People bled for and fought for this freedom it is preserved and enshrined in the Constitution, passed down to us, not by man, not by government, by, but by our God. So you're not coming and taking my stuff. Molan Labe, Sean Parnell style, everybody. The book is all out <laughs> war. You should pick it up now. Sean Parnell, buddy, author, American patriot, Army Ranger. Thanks for coming to hang out in the Freedom Hub, man. We, we, always enjoy you got to come here more we, i know we'll, we'll, I do, love we'll it. do the parnell hour anytime you're in town we'll just we'll just do a whole, whole hour of non-stop parnell so there we go man any i love this thank you for having me and you always are so gracious to me and give me so much time buck so thank you and, and thank you to your listeners who are who are just so dedicated and wonderful all right man best of luck with the book team we'll be back with some uh, closeout roll call in just a second the show ain't over yet folks Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call.
Sean Parnell. He's one of the obviously he's a friend of mine, so I think very highly of him. He's one of the the nicest uh, nicest guys you'll come across in the media business, and I'm I'm glad that his his books are doing so well. They are. They're doing very well, and people really really dig them. And um, I I think I might have to read his fiction because I've already read his nonfiction and it was excellent. Uh, well, let's get to it because we don't have a long time for roll call today. Uh, some of you, by the way, we, we are. And producer Mark can confirm this. We are trying to get a new email address set up so people can email about the show, right? This is going to happen, right, Mark? Yes, it is being worked on as we speak. There we go. There we go. That's what I'm talking about. Boom. All right. Susie and Andy. Uh, Thanks for dropping the podcast sooner. I work until 7 p.m. Eastern and will finally be able to enjoy my shift. Well, there you go, my friend. Yep, the podcast. It's going to start going early. I even have a day for you. As of September 23rd, podcast is going to be up every day by 3 Eastern. Bam. That's right. That's right, Producer Mark. Get excited. Maybe earlier if I'm good at my job. Maybe a little earlier if Producer Mark doesn't have to, you know, take a cigarette break. You don't smoke, do you? I don't know. No, I don't want to kill myself. Wow, look at you. Smokers across the country are flicking their cigarettes at Producer Mark from afar. Ryan writes... Uh, you talked about the Rotten Tomatoes ratings of Sticks and Stones versus the ratings of viewers. Rotten Tomatoes ratings come mostly from critics writing for lefty papers and magazines. I find their ratings are often in conflict with the ratings of viewers, and this, to me, shows the disconnect between the woke media and normal citizens. Very rarely will a movie or show get good tomato ratings unless there's a left-wing agenda if it's a drab, artsy, and super boring. In fact, I find the ratings useful as I can generally determine if it's going to be a good show by the low ratings. You'd think critics would rate on a consensus mindset, but it seems most critics want to virtue signal and appear to be intellectually superior to the general viewer. Yeah, no, I agree. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people who are in the uh, ratings business are... Now, I mean, look, you get the woke left-wing crowd. There's no question about that. You have people who are... Uh, overwhelmingly going to be, uh, you know, Democrats left. And and now they also I, I think there's a little bit of fear involved, too. I think there's a little bit of, uh, you know, if you say a movie is good and it's among your peers considered not woke or social justice problematic or anything else, you know, then I, I think uh, you might suffer. People are worried about suffering consequences, you know, that you won't be considered part of the of the in crowd anymore so yeah no i i agree with you i mean a lot of very good movies i'm pretty sure that 300 for example had like terrible terrible critics uh ratings and was just a you know 300 was amazing uh it's an amazing movie i mean you know it's not like high cinema or anything but it's so entertaining it's so fun uh and there you go uh benjamin writes buck you mentioned you might be visiting Nashville in the near future. When might that be? My wife and I would love to meet you since we live nearby Shields High. Um, well, Ben, I'm going to be at Politicon, which is a big political event uh, for pundits pretty much in Nashville. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's what I think. Uh, there you go. You can you can show up at Polit- I think Politicon's open to the public because they want you know viewers. I'm pretty sure. Then you just buy a ticket. So I'll be at Politicon. There you go. That's the next time I will be in Nashville. Jeremy. Jeremy. I'm going to stop doing that. Sorry, Jeremy. Uh, 
On the Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart gun sales, Dick decided to make a public announcement supporting gun bans and refused to sell certain guns in February 2018. Their stock just had a major drop in the past two years from $60 to $25 a share. When they made the announcement, they were at $34. Since then, they've been between $34 to $36 with a peak for a week around $40. Nike took a hit for a couple months, but is back to where they were when they signed Kaepernick, although I still buy other brands. Walmart, on the other hand, has been phasing firearms out of their stores for a while. They decided to quietly stop selling certain ammunition after the El Paso shooting, but the media found out and made a big deal about it. Firearms is not their major selling point, so I don't see them taking a hit over this. Um, I, I, I'm just going to have to believe your numbers, Jeremy, because I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. I'm not an investor in Walmart or in Dick's Sporting Goods. So, yeah. Let's see. We have Sandy. I just wrote an email to Walmart that I will no longer shop there. I let them know my gun harms no one. Bad people do. Well, Sandy, you are allowed to voice your opinion in this way, and there you have it. Um, I got a little testy today on Twitter with Verizon Fios because they made me wait for three hours for somebody who it turned out was never going to show up in the first place. The mistake was on their end. Um, You know, that's three hours of my life sitting around, you know, got to have the phone there. Yeah, I was able to read and prep for the show, but, you know, I I wasn't planning on being home for three hours and not able to leave my apartment. So I don't like that. So I let them know. And then I love they DM you if you if you tweet at them they DM you like how can we help you I'm like can you give me three hours of my life back? N- no. Okay. How about how about just just waive my cable fee which is outrageously high for one month or e- or even one week? Oh no, we can't do that. So in what way are they really offering with these customer service things? Are they really offering to help you? I think we all know the answer is they're not. They're not offering to help. So that's just. Uh, that's the way it is. Sean, the Army of Darkness starring Bruce Campbell is a cult classic. I had sounding boards full of movie quotes and sounds back in the mid 90s. The movie is the third in the original Evil Dead series, but can be watched by itself due to the quick history scene at the beginning of the movie. If you do find it enjoyable, you may also appreciate the series Ash versus Evil Dead that is currently available on Netflix. All right, Sean. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I will... Give that a, I'll give that a go. I'll, gi- I'll give it a go. Uh, that's going to be it from the Freedom Hut for today, my friends. Get ready, get psyched. couple weeks, we start dropping the podcast every day at 3 p.m. So subscribe on iTunes to the Buck Sexton Show. Subscribe now. You'll get that show early. Shields high.